Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The word of God for the people of God. So I began this series on Wednesday evenings entitled The Radical Stories of Jesus. And it's a study on Jesus' parables. And depending upon how you categorize those parables, depends on how many there are. Oh, they're allegories. Oh, they're metaphors. They're par- well, there's about 36, whatever you want to call them. And they include some of the greatest stories ever told. A full third of everything Jesus had to say. And some of us were raised in churches where your Bible, you had red letter edition Bibles where all the words of Jesus were in red. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That's right, right on. Well, a full third of what Jesus had to say, he said it in story form. He said it using these stories. And they aren't illustrations. They aren't sidebar, less important, lighthearted distractions from the real stuff he had to say. A parable is what Jesus had to say. Well, what is a parable? It is a story intended to communicate a much larger truth, or, and as Jesus does this often, to challenge a listener's assumptions. So in Jesus' case, the parables have a distinct function, and a distinct subject matter. The function is to unsettle the listener, to disturb us, to throw us off balance. They are not pastoral in the sense of being comforting. Now come here, baby, let me rock you to sleep. I'll tell you this nice bedtime story that Jesus told, and you'll just drift right off. No, they're intended to wake you up. To shock you. And short of having a shocking experience of your own, probably a story accomplishes this feat the most effectively. Jesus knew this. We know this. And now science has actually confirmed this. Scientists using MRIs have begun monitoring the brain functions of those listening to stories. Asking, what kind of effect do powerful narratives really have on our brains? Can a story translate into actual behavioral change? In one case, and I love this one, scientists at Princeton University monitored a person telling a story. She had an MRI hooked up to her. And when she got to a part of that story that was particularly moving, the part of her brain that controlled empathy and morality lit up like a Christmas tree. And not just hers. The listeners in the room who were also being monitored had the exact same reaction in the same place in their brain at the exact time. So the telling of that story moved their minds, literally. 
and bound them together in the telling of that story, actually changing their minds. Now, I'm asked all the time, all the time, why do you tell stories? Well, I'm Southern, (laughs) number one. And part of being Southern and sitting on a front porch is to tell a story. Somebody say, most of your talks, you know, they're stories. They're just stories. And uh, that question is usually asked out of curiosity, out of what's your technique? How do you put a sermon together, a talk together? And that's great. But sometimes that question is put to me with, shall we say, a little more snark. The question is put to me by those who want the more traditional sermon. You know, three points in a prayer, sister. Come on up, sister. Yeah. (laughs) Properly outlined, doctrinally heavy. And I've had people say to me quite forcefully, "You, you don't really teach anybody anything, do you? You, you just tell stories. You got me. All I know how to do is tell stories and sing songs, and if that's not in the job description, I can't do it. I'm sorry. But I bristle when somebody thinks that telling a story has no point to it. The story is the point. It's like a holy joke. If I have to explain the joke, it wasn't funny. But you tell the story. And that has a way of getting down into our hearts, moving us, changing possibly even our minds. And if you don't like a story, well, you're not going to like hanging out with Jesus. All he told were stories, a third of his time. And as the good old mountain fundamentalist used to say where I grew up, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Bold statement coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Doctrine doesn't change people. Not once. Jesus changes people. The creed does not convert people. Not once. Christ converts people. These fine, outlined, alliterated sermons, well-crafted as they may be, don't help people as far as I can tell. Because they fail to get down into the heart. Oh, they'll tell you what you ought to believe, but they don't teach you how to act. They don't show you how to actually be Christian. Just sign your name right here and say that you affirm this. And that doesn't seem to be the point at all of what Jesus was up to. I was looking at hymns this week by Fanny Fanny Crosby and George McCauley, whose memorial service and some of his family is already here with us today. His memorial service will be this afternoon. And uh, Fanny Crosby is his favorite hymn writer, I'm told. And you start looking through all the 12,000 songs that she wrote. And one of them rang true for me as I came across it, thinking about this talk today, thinking about George, and thinking about the songs I grew up singing. The chorus goes, tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me that story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. That's the answer. 
to tell the story of Jesus and to tell the stories of Jesus and about Jesus that he told. And that brings me back to the subject matter of Jesus' parables. His preaching and his stories went like this. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The rule of Christ has come. Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God or its equivalent, the kingdom of heaven, more than a hundred times in the Gospels. It was more than Jesus' favorite subject, more than an important part of what he had to say. It was the crux of everything he had to say. He told these stories about the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God? It is the presence, it is the power, it is the love of God brought to earth from heaven. It is the power and love of Christ demonstrated in the lives of people. Wherever the love of Jesus prevails over evil or injustice, the kingdom of God has come. And make no mistake about it, it comes here. It's very much about the lives we live today, not just the eternity we hope to gain somewhere else in an undefined future. So, Jesus invites his disciples then and now to follow him. But he isn't giving away predestined tickets for some heavily evacuation pod. While everything and everyone else here is tossed into the trash can. He came to create a community of love-infused people who would make it their vocation, their calling, to live out heaven on earth so that redemption, in whatever way that redemption manifests itself, could become real in this world today. He came to create a people who would pray. (laughs) Siri answered me over here just like she did Wednesday night. Let me tell you something funny that happened Wednesday night. I said, so what is a parable? And somebody in the front row's phone said, I'm sorry, I couldn't get that. Could you ask me again? (laughs) Let me say it this simple. Jesus did not come to relocate people from earth to heaven. He came to revolutionize the earth by putting heaven inside the hearts of people. There's a big difference between those two things. Because if you think, I'm just checking out here one day and all these other people can figure it out the best way they know how. Well, that really doesn't make you a loving or responsible person, does it? You're just waiting on the bus to arrive. But the kingdom of God isn't there. It's here. It isn't then It's now. Kingdom has come. Now, I'm not denying your eternal happiness. Some final redemption, pearly gates, golden streets. I'm all about that. But I am begging for some much-needed balance. Jesus did not put his emphasis on the here and after or define the gospel as some form of escapism. He was inviting us to find a better way to live today, to find the power and love of God working in our lives in such a way that the world around us is actually changed. Any faith that focuses only on some future paradise 
rather than sacrificing for and serving people today, cannot legitimately be called Christian faith. Those who follow a Jesus who concerns himself only with the hereafter and not bringing holistic change to the here and now are not living out the transforming message of Jesus. And a faith that leaves people and the status quo unchanged is useless. Worse than useless, for it aids and abets the misery of the world rather than healing the world. Well, we'll understand it all better by and by. Well, we will. But that's not an excuse to check out of life today. Not when there are 50 million refugees dispersed across this planet. 145 million orphan children. 25,000 who will die today simply because they can't get to clean water. A hundred million of Earth's residents live without a home. A million children trapped in prostitution and sex slavery. Three billion people denied access to a basic Christian community. And surely the love of Christ compels us not to ignore these people and say, well, glory, hallelujah, I'm going on to my mansion in the sky. Surely it compels us to turn with empathy and compassion and action and kindness and bring the kingdom of God to bear in the world today. Surely. Do I have permission to speak plainly? Thank you very much, I will. (laughs) Our society suffers from a deadly sickness an ailment that is far deeper than our symptoms. All the political wrangling, the looming threats of another faraway war, the intense social divisions, the never-ending racism, the violence, the hatefulness, these are all surface eruptions of an internal disease. We are dying, just like in that text we read today, we are in the dark, death's shadow hangs over us, Because we are dying from a lack of love. This failure to love is why greed succeeds. Whether it be corporate gluttony or some malignant prosperity gospel, it's all about you. While half the world and half our country can't even afford to go to a doctor. It's the lack of love then enables otherwise decent people to compartmentalize their ethics and their empathy just so long as their 401k is escalating. It is why we take sides instead of taking on the work of the common good. It is the cause for excluding others because of race, religion, sexuality, gender. It is why it is so easy to turn our heads away from refugees or caged children. Without love, our hearts constrict, our compassion tanks run dry, our ability to empathize, to be kind, to sacrifice, to serve, withers away like an atrophied muscle. The words of Thomas Merton have been proven tragically true in our time. Without the capacity to love, we have nothing to give others but our own ego and our own ambition. And speaking as a Christian, it's the worst possible scenario. 65% of this country claims to be Christian. 
65%. And yet you read Jesus' teachings and all of his stories and all of his words, all this about the kingdom of God comes down to a single mantra. One, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is not any more complicated than that. And when we fail to show the characteristics of love, it is either hypocrisy or betrayal of the very founder of our faith. I think it's the latter. We have placed our own Judas kiss on the face of the Christ, selling out to power and to greed and to dogma instead of teaching people how to be loving, compassionate human beings. Where did this all go wrong? When loving God and loving your neighbor is what it is all about. If the practice of Christianity doesn't lead us to become more loving, more compassionate, more honest, more kind, more open-hearted, we are doing it wrong, no matter how right we think we are. I know, I sound like a babbling flower child. All you need is love. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The band's mad at me because we didn't sing that song today because they heard me say that in the first service and I says, two services, that's a hard song to play. We didn't have time to get it together. But it's true nonetheless. All the great traditions, the wisest teachers, the most spiritually developed perspectives of history have always understood this, that only love put into practice by transformed and transforming people can lead to a more loving world. If you're waiting for the, lo for the world to get more loving... <laughs> Might as well go wait at the bus stop for your ticket out of here. But if you really want the world to be more loving, it starts with you. I can't make the world love, but I can let Jesus transform me. Right? I can't look out there and say, you people ought to be loving God and loving your neighbor. Am I loving God? Do I love my neighbor? And love isn't easy. It's not soft. It's not emotionalism. You know what love is? Love is tougher than hell. Tougher than the hells we create. Because love is patient and kind. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not boastful or proud or rude. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love believes all things, hopes all things, celebrates when the right thing is done, rejoices in the truth. Now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, and love will never fail. That's the kingdom of God. Last story. And you knew it would be a story, right? It's from my friend Walt De Niro who was a professor at the University of Georgia, thanks be to God. <laughs> oh, I knew, I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. And I've heard him tell this story for years, and uh, 
I've got to a point sometimes when I tell it, I don't even, I don't even, I don't even credit him because I want it to be mine. But uh, it's his. And I've told it here many, many times. Two little turtles sitting on a log. And they're talking about world events as people do when they sit on the log. And one turtle says, you know what? I'd like to ask God why he lets the world be in the shape it's in. Why is there so much hate? Why is there so much hunger? Why is there so much violence? And the other, other turtle thinks about the minute and he says, well, maybe you should ask God that question. And the first turtle says, no, I don't believe I will because I'm afraid that God might ask me the same thing. The day will come, and I believe it with all of my heart, when God's kingdom ultimately and finally will reign. The world will have no more injustice, no more evil, no more fear, no more hate, no more violence or sin. There'll be no more maimed and bullet-ridden soldiers. No more hungry children, no more school shootings, no more battered wives, no more drug addictions, no more refugees, no more homelessness, poverty, abuse. But I also believe with all of my heart that I simply can't wait for that kind of world to magically appear. If I believe that one day the lamb lays down with the lion and our swords are beaten into plowshares, that mercy and justice will flow down like the waters, that every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or tears or crying or pain, then if I believe that, I can't loiter around during my time on earth and not live like that today. Because if that's where I'm heading... Let's go ahead and start living like that now because the kingdom of God is at hand.